Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hello, Awaken. It is good to be together on a virtual basis. Uh, Today, I hope that wherever this video or audio recording finds you, that it finds you well, that it finds you hopeful. Um, that it finds you taking care of yourself and of the people around you. Um, We miss you. We miss being in this space with you. I'm just like dreaming about it actually right now Um, and hopeful that one day we'll be back together again. Um, But while we're here today, we are going to sing a couple of songs uh, together uh, with my friends here on stage. By the way, this is Lisa Schoof's (laughs) <laughs> and then, yay, and then Alec Gilbertson is on bass, and then Jasper Nephew is joining us on guitar today, and we've just been having a lovely time, so we're glad that you're joining in with us. We're going to sing, uh, I think, which is my favorite hymn, one of my favorite hymns, mostly because the lyrics to the second verse are pretty much the, va- the best, so um, look forward to that. Uh, let's play it together and sing it together called The Love of God. Greater far than tongue 
the moon it marks the seasons the sun knows when to go down the ocean holds its creatures the river knows its bounds the birds the trees the cattle and all things great and small we find Be still and 
Hey everybody, welcome. My name is Micah. Glad that you're here. Um, I love those two songs. Wow. Um, a couple of things. That we're we're going we're to keep going in our series, Lost in Translation, which uh, today is a, a real doozy, uh, which I'm excited about. So we'll look forward to that. But before we do, a couple of things you should know about community life and the life of our community. The first of which is, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but the work of the church is like still happening out there in the world. Um, while we haven't gathered together in this space since March, you're, you're out there. You're doing it. You're showing up to, like, teachers are going back to school. You're, you know, educating our children. You got people out there uh, working for selling houses in equitable and fair ways. You got accountants crunching numbers, making sure people aren't stealing money. Um, you know, justice and the values of the kingdom. Like, it's happening because you are out there doing it. And I just want to say, like, keep going as one of the pastors here at Awaken. Keep doing it. Um, this is, we miss this and being together, but like this is not dependent or the work of the church is not dependent on this meeting. You know what I'm saying? So keep going, keep doing it, be out there. Um, a couple of things that are happening in the life of the church, uh, one of which is the donation drop-offs we've done now twice. You guys are just killing it, totally killing it. Uh, that's happening again August 18th, so we're supporting a couple of different local ministries with the things that you all are bringing. So August 18th, 12 to 5, check the website, check the Awaken Weekly for the things you can bring and, and that um, are being accepted. Uh, the Pacham Silent Retreat, which is October 30th and 31st, and then again November 6th and 7th. There's only five spots left, so if you're interested in that, uh, jane at awakencommunity.com. Uh, we're opening the space um, August the 27th, so in a couple weeks. And um, I don't know how many people are going to come to that. I don't know how many of you are planning on it. Um, we have a sneaky suspicion that this first one may be more populated than, than, than maybe we anticipated. So just like we'll, we'll play that by ear, like if you get here that night and... Um, we'll just kind of flex and flow together and we'll, we'll figure out a way to do that. But from 4 to 7 p.m., the building will be open uh, and it's a space for you to come and to meditate, to reflect, to pray, to be, uh, to be still, which I think is one of the gifts of this um, season that we're in, if I'm being honest. It's forcing us to, to move in that direction, so we're just going to embrace it. Uh, so, and communion will be available, uh, COVID-friendly communion. Um, you, you'll crack up when you see these cups. I wish I could remember the name of the company we ordered it from. It wouldn't surprise any of you. Uh, and last but not least, we're doing coffee delivery again on um, August the 29th, Saturday for Sunday the 30th. So if you haven't gotten coffee yet and you want coffee, sign up in the Awaken Weekly. The link's there, and we will deliver it to your door on the 29th. And that will be ready for you to drink, well, whenever you want. But the idea was on the 30th when you sit and listen or gather to watch uh, the gathering you would be drinking Wildflower coffee. So that is the life of our church in a nutshell. Uh, this morning is the first in the history of Awaken. Ten years I've been doing this. We've been doing Lost in Translation for a number of years and never have I broached this topic. I've done some crazy passages in the past. You can go through the annals of history and find them. But never have I preached from the book of Song of Songs, also known as Song of Solomon. So today is your lucky day, friends. Or not. We'll see. Um, truth be told, my hope, and my hope and prayer for this morning is that what happens in the next 20 to 30 minutes will be a breath of fresh air for you. 
that what you hear, and uh, I, I hope that you have an experience of like, I've never heard that from the church or from a pastor or, or from God. And um, so that's what I've been hoping and praying for. Uh, last week we talked about confession. That was a real uh, step out on a limb. We're going further out on that limb today. We're doing sex and Song of Songs. So if you didn't get the pre-message warnings um, on Facebook and Instagram and Awaken Weekly, you might want to get the iPad or the Game Boy out for the children, unless you're down with that, you know, you're ready to have those conversations, then I say go for it. More power to you. What you, what you model as normal, guess what? It turns out for your kids, it ends up being normal. So if that's you, rock and roll. If it's not you, okay, now is the time that you want to find the iPad. Here's what I'm going to do today. We're going to talk about background and structure. We're going to talk a little bit about the interpretive possibilities of this book, which actually has a lot to do with where we find ourselves now in some of the, uh, as my grandpa used to say, the, the sticky wicket that maybe some of us find ourselves in. And then I want to end with kind of like, why does it matter? Like, why does it matter that we read or interpret the book of Song of Songs? And what are the implications if we interpret it this way or that way? And I think it means, I think it, it has huge implications. Um, So we're going to read chapter 7, which is argued by many as the sexiest chapter in the Bible. That is also my sermon title. Lost in translation, the sexiest chapter in the Bible. So if you have your Bible, Song of Songs, chapter 7. By the way, to those who say that the Bible is prudish and kind of stale, they clearly have not read this book. Nor Genesis 1 and 2. It starts with two naked people running around in a garden. And then you have this. Here we go, friends. If you can stand, please do. How beautiful. Your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns. Like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like a royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm tree and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb that palm tree and I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. She responds. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved. Let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have opened. Budded, excuse me. If their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance. And at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. I thank you for your word, all of it. Um, And I pray that in the next few moments uh, that you would do something unexpected and maybe even say something 
to us that we have never considered. Uh, May the words of the preacher be uh, fruitful and consistent with who you are. Jesus, I pray that you would build your church to be the kinds of people that you created us to be and that you long for us to be in the world. In the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit, the church said together, amen. Jasper Nephew, friends. Yeah. That came together in the pregame warm-up. No surprise to anybody, we weren't planning on doing that until we were. So there you have it. Um, Let's talk about the structure, the background of this book. Uh, The reason I chose chapter 7, not only because it's called the sexiest chapter in the Bible, but because it gives you the three main characters in the book, which is really kind of the structure that Song of Songs is built around. Uh, In this chapter, you meet these three different voices. You meet the Shulamite woman, or the the bride, uh, who has the most... Uh, airtime. She speaks the most. So, con, you know, contrasting Ecclesiastes, which is kind of pejorative towards women, Song of Songs is like pro-female. Um, she has the most most uh, airtime in the whole book. She pursues uh, her lover in the chapter we read. So, a very forthright young lady. You have the young man or the lover. Some argue it's Solomon in his younger age. Some argue it's a shepherd. Some argue all sorts of different things. We'll get to a bit of that in a minute. Um, And then you have the chorus of people who sort of chime in here and there and serve as transitions. Um, The book seems to, maybe at face value, lack a clear uh, arc or narrative like plot line which is, the, which is a critique or, or reason that some people argue that it's actually just a collection of a bunch of poems. Uh, and I would argue that maybe that's not, uh, that doesn't have to be a reason that it is a collection of a bunch of poems. In fact, uh, if you dig in a little bit and you, you look at ancient Near Eastern literature that's similar to it from cultures surrounding Israel at that time, you find that this kind of love song uh, is not uncommon. And, um, and it, it's a song, it's, it's poetry, so it doesn't have to have a sort of narrative arc in it. And, and so uh, many would argue, and I think I would agree, that it's a unified work from beginning to end that can be taken as a whole. Um, as it relates to its place in scripture, no surprise to anybody, uh, this one is hotly debated. I mean, there is so much talk about illicit, seemingly illicit sexual metaphor that is not difficult to... Um, see or, or so, so it's talking a lot about that and, and so no surprise to anybody this one was debated a lot as to whether or not it should be included in the Hebrew Bible so for the Jewish community and for the Christian Bible uh, thankfully there were some wise rabbis and uh, early Christians in the story who were arguing for the inclusion of Song of Songs in, in the Holy Scriptures one rabbi, Rabbi Akiva says while all the sacred writings are holy the Song of Songs is the holy of holies Hear, hear, Rabbi Akiva. Uh, So it is included in both the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures as canon. In the Jewish calendar year, it's one of five scrolls that's read from start to finish, celebrating different holidays in the year. So from, uh, in this order, Song of Songs is read in the springtime at Passover. Uh, The book of Ruth is read in the summer, celebrating Shavuot. The book of Lamentations is read in late summer, which is celebrating the ninth of Av, I think that's how you pronounce it, which is also known as the saddest day of the year, uh, remembering the the destruction of the temple in Israel. Uh, And then Ecclesiastes is read in the fall at Sukkot, and Esther is read in the spring at Purim. And there's something fitting about Song of Songs being read at Passover in the spring, 
which seems weird to say. Why would you read about illicit sex and passion at Passover, right? But um, except that the Passover and that narrative is the crossing of the Red Sea, it's the wandering in the desert, and for many, it's the consummation or the beginning of the relationship of God and Israel. And so uh, all the talk, of, so that's happening, and then all the talk about the blossoming of love and um, is kind of concurrent in spring with what's happening in the natural world. So it, to me, it makes a lot of sense to be read at that time. Not that it's up to me, but either way, uh, it's read in spring at Passover. In terms of like who wrote it, couple theories. Uh, one is Solomon wrote it. The v- verse one identifies uh, Solomon as the writer. Some, if you've been around the last couple weeks, that doesn't necessarily um, mean that the historical Solomon wrote it, uh, but some would argue that he did. Uh, another option uh, would be that like a poet in Solomon's court wrote the book, and others would be that at a later date, uh, someone other than Solomon or anyone in his court wrote it sort of um, pseudonymously. Um, it really doesn't matter, quite frankly, um, but uh, I, I think the best option there, if you're interested, is either Solomon or someone in his court during the time of Solomon, during the reign of Solomon as, as the king. Uh, so that's a little bit about the, the structure and the history of the book. What about interpretation? And here's where we get to where it starts to really matter as to how we read this book. Um, and in terms of uh, books of the Bible, there may not be a book in the Bible that has more variance in terms of how people have interpreted it historically. Uh, one, one medieval Jewish commentator says that Song of Songs is like a book for which the key has been lost. So there are so many variant opinions on like how to interpret this text. Um, And it makes sense, right? Even in our minds, we hardly know what to do with sex in our bodies. Now you couple that with God and religion and you've got a real cocktail of um, variant opinions and and disparate ideas, all claiming to be like the word of the Lord and how you should interpret it. Um, So there are PhDs on how to interpret this book. There are PhDs on the history of how people have interpreted this book. I'll just give you a couple of broad categories so you have a sense of uh, what are the options. And one of those is going to sort of lead us to the last part of our, of our time together. Uh, the most popular sort of interpretive lens is allegory, meaning that the book really isn't about sex at all. The book is actually about um, God and a number of subjects whom God is in relationship with. So for the Jews, this was uh, God in relation, Yahweh in relationship with Israel. And while there are a number of like notable rabbis who argue that this is not the best way to read it, there are a lot who say this is how you should read it. That this book is really about God's relationship with Israel, God's passionate kind of covenantal love of Israel. Um, For the Christians, of course, this is the picture of Christ and the New Testament church. Uh, In the New Testament, the metaphor of the church being the bride of Christ certainly bolstered that idea. But throughout the history of the Christian church, allegory is the most popular way to read Song of Songs, which is a real mind-bender to me. More on that in a minute. So from Jerome to Augustine to Origen, who wrote like a 10-volume commentary on Song of Songs, uh, to Gregory the Great, Luther, Calvin, um, Cotton, who is, you know, the Puritan tradition, they all um, are kind of arguing for allegory in their, own, in their own way. Here's my favorite allegorical example. And by favorite, I mean, I think the most ridiculous. I'm tipping my hand here. Um, so the one who's brought into the king's chamber, the, 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 the lover, is said to be those whom Christ had wedded and brought into his church. The breasts are to be taken 
are, are taken to be the Old and New Covenants. And the hill of frankincense is said to speak of the eminence to which those who crucify fleshly desires are exalted. Unbelievable. <laughs> I don't think that's what it means. Um, what was that movie? Uh, um, well, I don't think that word thinks, I don't think that means what you think it means. Princess Bride. There you go. <laughs> I don't think the hill of frankincense has anything to do with those who have crucified fleshly desires and their exaltation. I'll just say that. Uh, evidently, Bernard of Clairvaux, a church father, preached 86 sermons on Song of Songs, only covering the first two chapters, and was like hell-bent on uh, obsessive allegorical interpretation, and I quote, in an attempt to purge it of any suggestion of carnal lust. To the psychologists in the room, if you write 10 volumes of a commentary on Song of Songs and you preach 86 sermons and you only get through the first two chapters, you might think there's something else going on here. Like, a lot of energy around that for you. Anything you want to talk about? <laughs> oh my gosh. For, uh, for Catholics, the bride in the Song of Songs, um, many, for many, is interpreted as Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. And, and as it relates to the Eucharist, uh, there's this idea that uh, essentially this is a picture of what happens in the Eucharist, this holy sort of mysterious union between the church and Christ. So there's allegory. It's not really about sex at all. It's about spiritual metaphor and God and us. So that's one option. Then there's drama, that this is basically like a, 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 an ancient drama, like a play to be acted out. Like, and there's two characters. There's Solomon and the Shulamite, or in another version, there's Solomon, the Shulamite, and then like a shepherd lover. And in that option, this is like Solomon tempting the, the woman who's betrothed to the shepherd lover. And so this is like, uh, you know, power and the king and trying to dissuade love from being faithful. And in the end, she doesn't budge. Um, so that's another option. This is like an ancient drama. So you have those two. Then you have like a cultic interpretation. And by that, I don't mean any cats are being sacrificed or anything, but rather, that this is, uh, um, it's taking cues from ancient cultic Babylonian and Canaanite fertility cult literature. So essentially, like this is a copy of or even the exporting of those into Jewish literature. That's a pretty minority view for, I think, good reason. Um, but allegory, drama, cultic, and then you have uh, the last of which, which I'm arguing for, and that is like this is an ancient love song or poem um, that's quite literal. And by literal, I don't mean like the metaphors are literal, your nose is like a tower of whatever, but rather this is actually about sex. This is actually about passion and bodies and love and intimacy. It's not some huge allegory of God and us, but it's an ancient love song written in a format that's not uncommon for its time, likely by Solomon or, during, or, or someone in his court, and it celebrates love and intimacy and sex that's experienced between two people in a monogamous covenant relationship. Um, even the Stoic German Karl Barth talked about this and argued for it. He, he said essentially there's, there's no shortage of verses or allusions in the Bible that talk about the destructive power of lust gone awry. Um, but how marriage and fidelity is kind of like uh, the, the boundaries that are set forth where Song of Songs then is not a prohibition or a warning like all the other ones, but it's a celebration of this place, this, this relationship where sex is experienced as a gift from the divine. Uh, it rejects both ideas of like asceticism where we deny any bodily pleasure or, or debauchery where we just unfettered 
you know, passion gone wild. Um, one commentary that I, that I found very helpful says it this way. The song, Song of Songs, presents sexuality as a good thing protected by marriage, not as an evil thing made permissible by marriage. So it's talking about the, the, the nature of sex and intimacy. So that's a little background, a little of interpretive. Let's, let's get to what I really want to talk about, which is like, why does this matter? Um, why should we care about this book? And why does it matter how we read it or interpret it? Uh, when we begin to be honest about the best way to read chapters like chapter 7, which seems very clearly about sexual, a sexual encounter between two people, like just to recap, your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. I'm not going to like go into all the details here, but I don't think that's hard. <laughs> your breasts are like two fawns. Your statue is like that of a palm tree. Your breasts are clusters of fruit. I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. And the bride responds, let us go early to the vineyards and see if the vines have budded. I don't think we're talking about grapes here, friends. Uh, if their blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom, the mandrakes, which is a noted and known aphrodisiac in the ancient world, send out their fragrance and at our door is every delicacy. We're not talking about creme brulee or, you know, double chocolate fudge cake here. We're talking about sex. So when we come to grips with the fact that that is in the Bible, like the word of the Lord, thus, you know, thanks be to God. I think we can start by admitting the fact that the tradition that many of us come from, myself included, if it had anything to do with the church in general or evangelicalism in particular, we can begin to be honest about, dare I say, the failure of discipleship as it relates to our bodies and sex. Um, so why does this matter? Many of us are still, as adults, in marriages, unlearning what we were taught by the church about sex and our bodies. Now, I'm a pastor. I work for the church. I represent the church. So, and I recognize that there are some of you out there for whom this, this is not you. Like, you grew up in the church, and somehow you came into marriages and intimate relationships, and it's been up and to the right for you. Like, all skies are blue, uh, you know, no wounds, no trauma, no disconnection from your body. It's just, it's good sex. Great. Like, I see you, I hear you, and I celebrate that. That's wonderful. At the same time, I, my experience would lead me to believe that you're, you're the exception in the room, not the norm, as it relates to, like, evangelical Christian church culture. So for many of you listening, you've spent maybe the better part of your adult lives trying to disentangle the lies, maybe not overt or explicit or intended lies, but the, the untruths, what you were taught to believe about your body and sex. You're trying to disentangle, you spend a lot of time trying to disentangle that from what's true, from God, and from your own lived experience. So why does this matter? We're human, and the only reason you're here is because of sex. The only reason any of us are here, and it, it is a huge, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, it is a huge part of our life as humans walking on this planet. So I want to start by saying, I'm really sorry. I am a, like I said, I'm a pastor. I, whether I like it or not, I represent an institution 
which for hundreds of years has offered really harmful ideas and teachings about our bodies and about sex in general. And so, so if you find yourself in that group of people who feels like maybe you've been hurt or wounded or, or just misinformed generally by the church or those who represented the church, um, who feel like you were taught or handed a less than accurate view of what the Bible might say about our bodies and about sex. If you listen to my sermon last week, this will make sense. In the stead of and in the name of and by the power of Jesus the Christ, please forgive me. Like, I am very, very sorry. One of my first, like, calls that I felt, or in, I'll say invitations, that I felt when we started Awaken was a very strong sense of, and a very strong desire to be a community that in some way, shape, and form offers uh, the possibility of people seeing Jesus for who Jesus really is. And that assumes, you know, one could say, well, that's a pretty arrogant idea, but at the same time, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile task and a noble task. And so part of my desire for this church has always been that you might see Jesus for who Jesus really is, not in the garb or masked behind what the church attempted to tell you about Jesus, but that, like Jesus would reveal himself to you in transformative ways and that you would see God for who God really is. And so I think it's important for me to start to, by saying, uh, on behalf of the church, if you find yourself in that place, like, I'm really, really sorry. Um, and I want to ask a question, <clears throat> actually. And the question to that, the answer to that question may be no, and it may be I don't know, and it may be yes, and all three of those are okay. But the question is, are you open to allowing God and the Bible and the Spirit of God to shape and reform your imagination, your beliefs, and your understanding about sex in your body. Love is a tricky thing. And when we get hurt in love, our first response is often to say, not going to do that again. And yet, what other options do we have? We were made for relationship. And if God is out there, and the church is about leading people, helping people understand, relate to, have an experience with the divine, then are you open to allowing God and the Bible and the Spirit of God reform, shape your imagination around sex in your body? And again, you may say, not yet. Okay. You may say, I'm not sure. Okay. And you may say, okay, I'll roll the dice again. Okay. But I think it's important to, to, nap, to, to name where you are. Which leads me to a second point of why this matters. I think the Bible argues for, maybe it doesn't argue for, but presents an embodied and integrated spiritual life which includes sex and our bodies. It doesn't dismember, it doesn't place over here, it doesn't disassociate, but it includes our bodies and sex. 
For so long in Christian theology and for so many, our bodies were the root and are the root of the thing we call sin. That like if we could like boil it down to like what really is the problem here and what's getting us into all this trouble, what's causing us to sin, the answer to that in traditional Christian theology is this body. If we can only master this body and these desires that we have, if we can only manage them and lock them down with habits to control them, then we can mitigate and minimize sin in our life, which is the enemy of God, which the body is the the source of or the problem, the beginning of. And here's why this is connected to allegory. Stick with me, friends. This is the deep end of the pool, but I think you you can do this, and I think it will pay out. It's so mind-bending to me that Christians moved so quickly and so, like, uh, in great number to allegory being the way we understand Song of Songs. The reason I say that is because allegory finds its, like, philosophical basis in a heresy that the church was rooting out for the first 250 years of its life. Here's what I mean. The basis in philosophy, the philosophical basis for allegory, where Song of Songs is about God and us, not sex and our bodies, is rooted in a dualistic and Gnostic worldview. Here's a quote. In this system, Gnosticism, uh, the mind or the soul is the higher nature of humanity, and it was thought to be imprisoned in the physical body with its appetites for food and sex. So these two things are pitted against one another in Gnosticism, in dualism. The goal of true philosophy was to free the mind from its bondage to the appetites to enable it to partake fully in the spiritual life. So Gnosticism is rooted or based in this idea that the spiritual is good, the physical is bad, and what we seek, what we long for, what we like, search after is the spiritual experience. And we, deny, we either deny asceticism or we just engage without care our physical, bodily, carnal desire, appetites. um, uh, And so these two things are are never to be connected to one another. How you you achieved the sort of the the Gnostic spiritual experience was either deny it or go full, full, full tilt. If Song of Songs does anything, if it's it, it, it celebrates our bodies as, and it celebrates not only the desire for companionship, but it celebrates sex and intimacy. It celebrates our senses and what we experience in these bodies. The last thing it does is say that our desire is the root of the problem or our body is the root of the problem. So why does this matter? For thousands of years, for hundreds of years, the church by and large, has said the best way to interpret Song of Songs is allegorical, which is actually rooted in Gnosticism, saying that, well, this isn't, it can't be about sex in our bodies because it's in the Bible. And what's spiritual is good and what's of physical nature is bad. And so it's got to be allegory. It can't be about our bodies. The Bible begins with God declaring all that God made as good, And all that God made includes our bodies. So who you are in that body of yours, it's good. What you feel in that body of yours, it's good. What the sexual desire that you have in that body of yours, and dare I even say, gay or straight, at its base is good. Now this is where Christians diverge in in interpretation on like what to do with that. But at its base, that's not bad in and of itself. 
It's not evil. We can choose, we can make choices about our desire and our passions and our appetites that are destructive and that don't bring life. Sure, but they're not evil in and of themselves. That's not the problem. Our bodies and sex and the desires in and of themselves are good. And it seems that the Bible is arguing that God created them as a gift. Which means, here's the payout, I think, we don't need to dismember parts of ourselves in order to follow God. We don't need to disassociate certain parts of ourselves or, or our bodies or our passions in order to follow or be loved by God. We don't need to be afraid of our own sexuality in order to follow God. We don't, and, and here's the wild one, like for, for so much of our lives we're taught to be afraid of, our response to our bodies and sex is fear and shame and then overnight once we have a ring on our finger it's supposed to be freedom. That's so dumb and it's caused so much harm for so many people. It seems to me from cover to cover, the Bible's inviting us to a holistic, embodied human experience that is in touch with and even befriends our bodies and our sexuality. So why does Song of Songs matter? Because many of us, under the church's teaching, have learned faulty or misguided and even harmful things as it relates to our bodies and sex. And secondly, because in our fear and shame about our bodies and sex, I think we're missing out on a great opportunity that <laughs> these two seem to be having a ton of fun in this book. And I think if this is true and this book is about our bodies and sex and it's in the Bible and God intends it to be a gift, then are we not missing out on a great gift from the divine? It seems to me that many of us have and are. And I think that is just so sad. And if I have anything to say about it, I want to change that. I hope that you, you've heard things today where you're like, what? That cannot be true. It might be. So why does it matter? I think for many of us, harm has been done. And we're, we're in the process of unlearning all kinds of things that we've been taught by the church about sex and our bodies. And I think the Bible argues for like a really integrated, holistic version or, or experience of being human. That includes, doesn't disassociate, doesn't dismember, doesn't put over there until a certain point in time when you have a certain thing on your hand, but actually includes it. So, I'm going to ask a few questions as we close in the spirit of like a spiritual director. Um, this may be some brand new information for some of you. It may be uh, somewhere along the way in a journey for some of you. But I just want to ask some questions, and I'd love for you to ponder them. What would it mean for you and your relationship with God if your body and your sexuality wasn't just tolerated, but welcomed and celebrated? Like, what would change in how you relate to God if your body and who you are as a sexual being wasn't just tolerated, but welcomed and celebrated and included in your experience with God, what would change? What would it mean for you if your first response to conversation about sex and our bodies wasn't fear and shame? but it was wonder and delight.
think for so many of us, the moment we start talking about sex and our bodies, like almost like an autonomic response, like breathing or your heartbeat, we immediately go to fear and shame, which is the product of your life's learning around this topic. What, what would it be like if your first response was wonder and delight? That sounds like freedom to me. How would your experience of God change if you didn't have to dismember parts of yourself to follow God or be loved by God? Like, gay or straight? What, what would change, how would your experience of God change if you didn't feel like you had to leave a part of yourself over there in order to be here? Like, what would that be like? And lastly, is there anything you feel invited to leave behind? Coupled with that, I would say, is there anything you're grateful for and that you feel invited to keep and to bring along? It hasn't all been bad. But is there anything you feel invited by the Spirit of God to say, you know what? Um, That's not helpful. And I don't think it's true. And I'm going to leave it right here and keep going. Is there anything you feel invited to leave? And are you open to the Spirit of God leading you in that process? Because I think that's really important. And are you open to to trustworthy communities speaking into that process? Because I think that's really important too. Left to my own devices, I can make really bad decisions. But submitted to the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of truth, which I can trust to lead me to that which is true, and with community and people I trust around me who are speaking into my life, okay, now we're cooking. Are you open to the Spirit of God leading you in that process? whatever that might look like, of leaving some things behind, of taking some things with you, of of learning some new things about this body that you inhabit and what it means to be a sexual being and how to live that out in life-giving and fruitful and God-honoring ways. That's what I hope and pray for as a pastor. And I think that Song of Songs and other passages in the Bible actually invite us deeper into that conversation, not further away from that. So, my first sermon from Song of Songs, the sexiest chapter in the Bible. Pray with me. God, uh, in these next few moments of silence, I ask that uh, you would be with my friends who are listening. And that as we make our way to the table and uh, a time of communion, which comes from the word union, which has a lot to do with intimacy and two people coming together in one moment. Would you begin to uh, peel back the layers? Would you turn on the lights in the places that are dark? Um, Would you expose the lies that maybe we have believed about ourselves or about our bodies or what it means to be humans made in your image, um, fully capable of sex and intimacy? So, Holy Spirit, I trust that you are good, that you are kind and compassionate, and that you will be gentle, um, and that you will lead us to truth. And so, do that now, I pray, for, for me and for my friends.
So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, <clears throat> he took bread and uh, he broke it. I always forget sourdough is really a bad idea for communion. It's great for French toast, but it's hard to work with. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Uh, and so when you, when you eat of this, remember me. Um, and remembering is actually like, like remember me, like bring me back into you. If something has been dismembered or put away or moved, like remember me. Uh, in the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is a new covenant written in my blood. And so whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. Bring me back into you and let me bring, me, bring you back into me. Which I find more compelling, by the way, that we are in Christ. Not so much that I'm inviting Christ into me, that somehow in this mystery, I'm being invited into Christ. We're all being invited into Christ. Um, and so that's what communion is. Uh, this table, it's, it's the churches. Or I'm sorry, it's not the churches. It's, it's Jesus's. <laughs> uh, I think at times the church has tried to make it its own, but it's, uh, it's not ours. So um, it's the table of the Lord. And it's made ready for those who love God, those who want to love God more, those who... Uh, those who have tried and those who have failed. So if you have a little bit of faith or a lot of faith or like a shred of faith, Jesus says, come. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come not because Pastor Micah invites you or Pastor Jenna or Melody or anybody else or the Pope himself, but because the Christ, Jesus, made known to us, uh, says come and be filled, be remembered by me in this moment. So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words. <clears throat> the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat, my friends. Be remembered and remember. And in the same way, as you take the cup, I invite you to hear these words. Uh, the blood of Christ shed for you. So take and drink all the way in. Be remembered and remember. <clears throat> okay, whew, we did it. <laughs> uh, lightning hasn't struck. Um, the building is still standing and we talked about sex. And I think we're better for it. I hope we're better for it. My hope and my prayer, again, is that this morning is a part of your journey and maybe that's unlearning some things or continuing to learn some new things um, where you begin to or you continue to see this body that you inhabit and sex itself as a part of the divine and human experience as a gift not something to be managed or something to be afraid of but like delight <laughs> and that you would continue to move towards a greater integration and wholeness as a person in relationship to God and each other and the world that we live in. And isn't that it? According to Jesus and lots of other people, quite frankly, but according to Jesus, like that's the goal. Uh, 
Uh, So, my friends, know that the Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord's face is lifted up to you and is being gracious to you in this moment. And the Lord's countenance, the face of God, lifted to you, eye to eye, giving you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen. Grace and peace, friends. See you next week. facebook.com backslash awakening community or on twitter awakening community see you next time